and we're going to be, I'm going to read a passage in Luke chapter 4 if you want to follow along, and then put your finger in 1 Kings chapter 17, 1 Kings chapter 17. We sang a couple of songs this morning about how God is there and we can always run to Him, go to Him, He's our source of comfort. The interesting thing is that the widow of Zarephath from 1 Kings chapter 17 didn't run to God. God pursued her in her hour of desperation and need. We're going to read a familiar story as a springboard to our text, which is 1 Kings chapter 17, the widow of Zarephath. The story is recorded right after Jesus' temptation uh, and and as he's beginning his earthly ministry. I'm in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and this is what it says. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Note that, being glorified by all. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he stopped, though if you go to Isaiah 61, it's not the end of a sentence, but that's where he chose to stop because there's a huge division between that phrase and the next phrase, uh, and that might be something you choose to read. He said, uh, recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes of the uh, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, "Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." Now listen to this. And all spoke well of him and marvelled at his gracious words. That was their response so far. That that were and uh, marvelled at the gracious words that were coming uh, from his mouth. And they said, "Is not this Joseph's son?" And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. And they did. What we have heard you, uh, what we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in our hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the times of the prophet Elisha and none of them were, was cleansed but only Naam the Syrian. When they heard these things... All the synagogue were filled with wrath. So they went from spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words to filled with wrath really quick. And they rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. 
So Jesus uses this illustration of the widow of Zarephath, and it enrages the people because he likens and speaks of the grace of God that's given to those who are non-Jews, non-Israelites, and they didn't like that. In his presentation of himself, Jesus makes two Old Testament references, the widow of Zarephath, of Sidon, and Naaman, Naaman, the Syrian leper, And what we want to do is look at two desperate situations from this widow from Zarephath. What we're talking about these days is um, those who are desperate for God and God coming to their aid in the way that he chooses to come to their aid. And we want to continue that this morning. The drought was in judgment. There was a drought um, and it was a judgment because of the nation's rampant idolatry back in the Old Testament. First Kings chapter 17. Turn there if you will. It, led to, it was led by the royal couple Ahab and Jezebel, um, evil personified. And uh, that's, who, that's who was at the helm those days. There was rampant idolatry, not just theirs, but also in the nation. And chapter 16, verse 33 tells us this. Ahab did, he was the king. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's a pretty strong statement, that he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to, uh, than, than all of the kings who were before him. So God sent a drought upon the land because of not just his, but as well the nation's idolatry. That's the context of our story. Let's, uh, let's read our story, or at least half of it, from 1 Kings chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, behold, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. That was probably a pretty welcome word from the Lord. This guy killed people for um, standing against him. He had just delivered a strong word to the king. And God tells him, go hide, because he's probably going to be after your life, which is east of the Jordan. Verse 4, you shall drink from the brook, uh, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him Uh, bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land so God spared his life Ahab would have sought his life he said run hide I'm going to feed you and now the brook dries up and then we pick up our story then the word of the Lord came to him arise go to Zarephath Zarephath is not in Israel which belongs to Sidon And dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Um, Zarephath was north and west. It was a coastal city on the Mediterranean Sea. So he arose, verse 10, and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. What had God told Elijah? He said, Go to Zarephath. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. That's what he told Elijah. Elijah knew that. God knew that. This widow didn't know that yet. 
All right. And he sees this widow gathering sticks. He comes to the city gates, finds a, a, a widow gathering sticks. Maybe it's her. He tests it. He says, he, he says, bring me some water. And as she's going to get the water, then he asks for a small piece of bread. Notice her response. There might have been some dialogue that we don't have recorded. What we have recorded, though, we know this is what we have. She said to him, verse 12, as the Lord your God lives, not the Lord my God, as the Lord your God lives, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked and only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She had no idea that she was going to be providing for God's prophet. God said to him, I've commanded and she's going to be the one that's going to take care of you. She must have recognized, perhaps she recognized Elijah as a foreigner, an Israelite. She said, the Lord your God. Um, like she's saying, uh, it's like she's saying, listen, I'm telling you the truth. I swear to God, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. The very little that I have, we're going to eat and then I'm going to die. I have nothing prepared. I have only a little flour and oil. My son and I are going to eat, eat it and then we're going to die. We have nothing else. I have no other remedy, no supplies, no money, no one to care for me. I'm doing the best I can. I'm gathering sticks. I'm going to start a fire. I'll make little cakes. We'll eat, and then we're going to die. I wonder if Elijah thought, maybe I've got the wrong widow. I don't know. She seems willing, but she has very little. What had God told Elijah? Arise, go to Zarephath. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, remember what Jesus said over in Luke 4. Of all of the widows, and there were plenty in Israel, God didn't choose one of them. He chose this foreign woman who had nothing to provide for his prophet. God sought her out in her day of trouble. It wasn't she went running to the Lord. God sought her out. He went out of his way to send his prophet to her. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, do not fear. There must have been um, some fear in the voice that she, uh, the words that she spoke. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. Now, sometimes I'm not real sharp, but this looks like a test to me. We have very, very little. We're going to eat what we have, and then we're going to die. And he says, don't be afraid. Do what you've said, but first make something for me, and then make something for yourself and your son. Looks like it's a test. And she passed the test. Elijah's faith might have been tested as well. Doesn't really say, but clearly the widow's faith is being tested. Elijah guides this widow to the place of trusting the word of the Lord also. He did already. He was being obedient to the words that he had received. And now he's inviting her to come into that circle of listening to what the Lord has commanded uh, him, uh, him as well. He's saying, in essence, if you provide for me, the Lord God of Israel will provide for you. Now, I can think of all kinds of rational reasons why she wouldn't give the very last that she had to this prophet. She had a son. She loved her son. She was hungry herself. 
she was she didn't have anything anything to depend upon after this but she did what he but what he she did what he mentioned he was saying provide for me the lord god of israel will provide for you we say this from time to time and i like to go over it from time to time because i think it's critical for us to hear i know we know it but i think it's good that we that we're reminded of this what do we know about god's economy what do we know about the way god says He'll provide the things that he has offered us. Is it, I'll give to you, and then you take from that and give it to others? That seems very logical. God, you give to me, and then I'll take from what you give to me, and I'll give to others. But that's not what he says. He says, give, and then I will give unto you. We have to give, believing, holding to the promise God, you said this, not in a back him in a corner sort of a way, with absolute respect and awe and appreciation, but you said your economy functions this way. If I'll give, then you'll give unto me. That's God's economy. It wasn't, I'll fill the jar with oil, I'll fill the jar with flour, and then from that, you make something for my profit. It was, do what you said, first give me a little bit, and then make something for you and your son as well. Forgive. Does God work this way? Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Or does he work Ephesians 4, 32? Or does he work this way? When you feel like you've got forgiveness in your heart, then you forgive the person that has offended you. He doesn't work that way. He says forgive as God in Christ forgave you. When I was forgiven, I hadn't hadn't quit sinning yet. God forgave me when I came to Christ, recognized who he was, repented. Forgiveness was enacted. It wasn't that I cleaned up my life, got everything nice, dressed pretty, went to church, observed the Lord's Supper, was baptized, all the stuff, and then God forgave me. God forgave me. And then he began working in my heart and cleaning up my life. God's economy is different than ours. To the father with a son who was demon-controlled, Jesus asked, How long has this been happening to him? From childhood. And often he's thrown him both into the fire, this demon, into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. And what was the other phrase? Help my unbelief. He recognized that I've got this human heart, mental challenge of believing God. I believe, but would you help my unbelief as well? And Jesus healed his child. God's economy is completely different than ours. God works on the economy of us believing him. It is not magic. It is not spiritual manipulation. Are there those that abuse, believe, and receive? Well, of course there are. We live in spiritual battle. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't proclaim a truth that's in Scripture. God's economy is believe and then receive. It's how you were saved. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It's the gift of God, yes. 
It's how you, as a believer, live in and walk in all the things pertaining to life and godliness. He's already given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Peter wrote, inspired by the Spirit of God, Am I walking in and enjoying all of the things that pertain to life and godliness? And might it be the things that I'm not walking in, I'm not believing God for? It isn't that I have to prepare myself for it. Believe God has already delivered it, forgiveness and, and all of the things that I need, and he, and, he, and he delivers those. God functions on a faith economy. Elijah said to this widow, do not fear. Go and do as you've said, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me. Afterwards, make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says, verse 14, the Lord God, the God of Israel... The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. If we had, this is going to hurt, if we had a promise from a government that said, Jerry, there's always going to be food in your freezer, there's always going to be gas in your gas tank, even if it costs $450. No, there's always, going to be, there's always going to be gas in your gas tank. I would find that very comforting. But who are we trusting here? Are we trusting an administration in D.C., regardless of whose administration it is? Or are we trusting the Lord God, our Creator? Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. The widow passed her faith test, as did Elijah. If Elijah was being tested, verse 15, she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. She had enough for one little cake of flour, and then her and her son were going to eat it and die, and now she's eating and providing for God's prophet for many days as well. The jar of flour was not spent, verse 16, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Why are we looking at different people who were desperate for God? We've looked at Nicodemus, we've looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we looked at the demon-possessed man, we looked at others. Why are we doing that? Why are we looking at individuals in the Old Testament and the New Testament who were desperate for God? To see how God works? in different types of difficulties, and he gets to work how he chooses to work. So let's not try and back him into a corner and say, you did this for them, you got to do it for me, to discern how God works in different situations, to identify with some of the situations, and to realize, you know what, I am not alone. I don't know what difficulty you're walking through today, but I'm sure that some of us could bring some up and some of us would only let them pour out of our hearts and our mouths because they're that, that real for you right now. But you're not alone. There are other people who have gone through difficult things as well at difficult times in their life. And sometimes it's just kind of nice to know I'm not alone in this misery that I'm going through. And somebody can say, you know what? The Lord God reigns and I'm going to have to trust their faith right now. But I'm going to get back to the place where I'm believing God also. Desperate for God. Now this woman's story gets really delicate. And I'm going to treat it delicately as well. Delicate because death comes into the picture. And who here hasn't experienced someone close to you who has died? Look at verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. The son of the woman became ill. 
his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Time passed. They continued eating from the flour and oil continued to be in the jar. The widow was providing for Elijah as God had said she would. She didn't know it, but God told her that she would. God told him that she would, and she did. Her son, though, became ill, and he died. What do you have against me, O man of God? Are you here to make me remember my sin? Isn't it interesting that this woman would bring sin into the picture? Are you here to make me remember my sin and cause the death of my son? Words of desperation, words of despair, words of hopelessness. Reminds me of Psalm 42 and 43 that we looked at last week. And if you weren't able to hear that, I really want to encourage you to go to our website and pull up that message and listen to it. It was the psalmist, I think it was probably David that wrote those. And he goes from, where is my God, to, I know it's spiritual battle and I'm going to trust in him. If you haven't, listen to that. These, this woman has words of desperation. She's, she's desperate. She's hopeless. She's already had it pretty tough. Her husband had died in a very difficult time. She alone is left to care for her son. There's a severe drought. There's a dwindling of food. She only had a little bit of oil. She only had a little bit of fire. She had to go gather a few sticks. But God came through there. And now this. Now my son has died. Verse 19. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. Come on, Jerry, get through this. And laid him on his own bed. That's me praying to the Lord. <laughs> and he took her, gave, give me your son, and he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on, her own, on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord. And every time we've looked at someone who was desperate for the Lord, I've been looking for this crying to the Lord, and I'm seeing it repeated over and over and over. Not crying out to somebody else, not crying out to a therapist, and I'm not saying they're bad, but crying out to the Lord. And here this man cries out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I soldiered by killing her son. You hear a little bit of a twist in there in his crying out to the Lord. It's difficult in Israel. Ahab's seeking my life. Now I come down here. This poor widow's lost her son, hardly has anything. Are you going to bring calamity even on her? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Three times, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. In your mouth is truth. 
Now, some of us not, might not like this, but this miracle from God enabled her, helped her believe God. And that's okay. The widow goes from a crisis to comfort. And in this case, the miracle at the hand of the Lord by God, because God listened to Elijah's prayer, resulted in a confirmation from God. And this woman believed him. Miracles don't always do that. I'm reminded of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Both die. The one in torment says into the text, I beg you, Father Abraham, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may be so that they may be warned by so that so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Just because a miracle happens doesn't mean a heart is open. In the case of the widow of Zarephath, her heart was open. But what Jesus was telling in this story is they've got, mo- they've got God's word. If they're not going to listen to God's word, it doesn't matter how many people raise up from the dead. Their hearts are going to be hardened. I want to read a list of people who were resurrected in Scripture. There's the widow of Zarephath, the story that we're looking at right now. There's the Shunammite woman's son from 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 18 and following. The man raised out of Elijah's grave, excuse me, Elisha's grave. I had to go back and reread that one. Second Kings chapter 13, what happened is he died, and then when they put him in his grave, somebody had already been buried there. When his body touched theirs, then that person resurrected. The, the widow of Nain's son, Luke chapter 7, that was the first person Jesus raised from the dead. Jairus' daughter, Luke chapter 8, um, Jesus shows his power over death there as well. The third person that Jesus raised from the dead was Lazarus of Bethany. Various saints in Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 7, the Bible mentions some people who were raised from the dead in mass at the time of the death of Christ. When Jesus died, the earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open. Those open tombs remained open until the third day because it was at that time when Jesus raised that they came out of their tombs um, and they went into the city. Tabitha from Acts chapter 9, uh, whose Greek name was Dorcas, maybe you remember that story, Peter was used by God to raise her from the dead. Eutychus in Acts chapter 20, uh, he was a young man, Paul was preaching longer than he should have, um, he was on the third floor sitting in the window, he went to sleep, imagine that, people going to sleep at church, you guys don't do that, do you? He went to sleep, he went to sleep at church, uh, if anybody falls over, I'm going to know what happened. Uh, I'm going to come out and lay hands, no, I'm just, uh, uh, And so Paul went down and was used of the Lord um, to raise him from the dead as well. And then, of course, our Lord Jesus, um, who is the first fruits of the resurrection, even though he wasn't the first person to be resurrected. So that's kind of interesting all by itself. And I read those, and I want to tell you a little story. Um, We had a gal. I'm going to try and tell you a little story. 
we had a, I'm going to look over here because my wife's over here. <laughs> we had a gal in our church in Canidea who died. Um, Lucy Laney was her name. She shouldn't have died other than God's providence, and he can give life and take life, and it's unto the Lord to do that. Um, but she had appendicitis and just wasn't treated well. They didn't have any money. Uh, and by the time treatment came, there was already just massive infection, and I'll stop there. And so she died. And the way they do funerals there is different than we do them here. Um, they have the funeral within 24 hours. And so Lucy Laney was in her house, and there the coffin was open, and there were flowers. Not flowers like what we see flowers, like little flowers, stuffed into the coffin all the way around. And people are inside the house, and they're talking to each other and comforting each other. And a lot of people that didn't know the Lord came, and that was encouraging. And I was standing outside just kind of watching things. And I thought of, where's Roxanne? I thought of observation and interpretation. Uh, but I was standing outside and just watching things. And one of the things that came to my mind, silly, I don't know. One of the things that came to my mind was all of these people that God had resurrected in Scripture. And I thought, God, if no one else can, I can believe you for this. And I thought, that's kind of weird because, you know, I'd never seen anybody resurrect. She wasn't resurrected, by the way. Let me get to the end of the story first. Okay. Uh, <laughs> She's in glory. Um, but, but I thought to myself, I can believe you for this. And I prayed and asked the Lord to resurrect Lucy Laney, that others might see and believe. And she didn't get it. And I say that to say this. Who here hasn't been touched by death? And at the hour of death, when it's our children or our spouse or someone very close, our parents as well, but we kind of expect that one. It's a desperate situation. And crying out to the Lord is the way you meet desperate situations. And this lady, though she wasn't even an Israelite widow, she didn't even pursue the Lord. The Lord pursued her. I find that incredibly interesting and comforted her. Not many from Adam to today have received resurrection. There's been more than one or two. I just read you the examples, but not many. Death can bring desperation. Not always. Depends on the person, but it can. We all have had someone close to us die. As a matter of fact, I'll have a funeral next week. Pat Compton sits right over here, sweet-spirited, um, went home to be with the Lord. I, Thinking about death and funerals, I thought it would be interesting to know how many funerals I've done since I've been here. And I keep records that are you know, kind of like 92 93% quality. At least 83. I've had 83 funerals since I've been here in Lone Jack. That's 83 individuals or families of individuals that have gone through some level of trauma. And sometimes it's extreme trauma. And I think, and maybe you would add something, that I see one of three responses to death. For some... It's completely devastating. I don't know how I'm going to continue that level. 
Something you tell yourself you can never get through. It creates a desperation. A sadness that doesn't just automatically go away with time, even though people try and comfort you and tell you that it'll go away with time. That's some's response. For others, death is, of course, undesirable, but the reason, they reason everyone will die. There's nothing I can do about it. I just need to move on. And they just kind of toughen themselves up and move on. That can be okay, but it's not the best. We are going to have to deal with it. The other, and I heard this this week, is the way Job responded. Job, you remember the story of Job, how Satan had come to God and said, have you, God said, have you considered my servant Job? And, and, and he said, anything you want, just don't touch the man. And first he lost all of his animals, and then he lost all of his servants, and then he lost his family as well. Then Job arose, it says in Job 1, verse 20, and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. In the midst of great despair. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're all touched. And, and this widow of Zarephath, she, she got a resurrection of her son. If she lived longer than he did after he was resurrected, she was going to have to go through death again because everybody's going to die. The wages of sin is death. The reason we die is because of Adam and Eve disobeying God, doing exactly what we would have done as well. In all of this, it says, verse 22, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Maybe there was a why. Maybe. But it's God. I'm going to let you be God. God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I heard a friend, brother in the Lord that we worked with in Kanidea a long time ago say this about Job. Job loved God more than he loved the things, including the individuals that God had given him in his life. That's a healthy way to approach death. It could be everybody's going to die, so I got to just suck it up and move on. But God's not necessarily in that picture, but he's in this picture. And when we cry out to him, he comes and he ministers to us. He loved the people, excuse me, he loved God more than the people and the things that God had given him. I want us to know that God had Paul address the topic of death with the Thessalonians. And I want to read it to you. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's how he describes death. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. We grieve, but we have hope. For since we believe 
that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not perceive, precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Death will be swallowed up in victory. It's not happened yet, but it will be. 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And that resurrection will result in life forever and ever. The resurrection of the son of the widow of Zarephath, of the Shunammite woman of the man that was in Elisha's grave, of Nahan's son, of Jairus' daughter, of, Beth, of Lazarus of Bethany, of the Jerusalem saints, of Tabitha, of Eutychus. They all went on to die again. But there's going to be a resurrection forever one day. And I hope that these words can comfort you to approach death in a way that's honoring to the Lord. This, this, gal, this, this widow from Zarephath had difficulty... Her faith was tested. She passed the test well, provided for God's profit. And then she had more difficulty placed upon that. We're not, we're not guaranteed a smooth life. We're guaranteed that we can cry out to and call upon the name of the Lord when we have desperation. And death brings that desperation. And I thought we needed to hear that. Because I've done 83 funerals since I've been here. Probably more, and I just didn't have some of them in there. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you, recognize that you are God of life, that you allowed death, that you conquered death, and that you've given eternal life. Father, I pray that every one of us in this place would take this very seriously, that just because we're listening to the word of the Lord doesn't mean that we know the Lord. You tell us to test ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. And I pray that would happen in the heart and life of everyone that's here that would have a question of doubt about whether they know you or not. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible individual that teaches us, this widow, we don't even know her name, from Zarephath. Thank you that we've been able to worship you in truth today. In Christ's name, amen.